I think we're okay. Okay. If we just say, you know, we are here in your home office in Pasadena. Yes. We like to set up where we are so people are like, why does this sound funny? That's good. Set the scene for people's mm-hmm. imaginations. We have my big dog next to us on the couch. Yes. Who may or may not make noises while we, while we talk. <laughs> Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Lara Samara. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. from the office of Joseph Barkley, who is currently lead pastor at Radius LA in North Hollywood. I heard about his skin series back in 2005, it's a, or 2011. It was a sermon series back at Ecclesia when I first started going there. Uh, Joseph, welcome to our podcast. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, um, a little bit about Radius and, uh, you know, some of the work you might be doing there? Sure, sure, sure. I was born and raised in Southern California, and then after college, I became a musician for 10 years. Cool. And after touring for a while, my wife and I wanted to start having kids and thought we didn't want to raise them on the road. (laughs) So I ended up writing music for television, which kept me in L.A., and it gave us a chance to get really involved with the local church in Hollywood. We met some leaders. We were a part of starting Ecclesia Hollywood, Uh, and then at one point, I started... Well, I was a musician there first, so I was leading the music every weekend. And then a few years into it, through you know a crazy chain of events, I started talking and then eventually preaching. And then uh, I became the lead pastor for, I don't know, it would have been about three years or four, maybe three or four years. And then Radius was a church that I planted as the lead pastor. And that started two years ago Very cool. um, in North Hollywood, which is a radically underserved area 2.7 million people within 20 minutes of where we started and you know optimistic estimations say that about 2.3 million of the population have no involvement whatsoever in any kind of jesus-centered faith community so we thought if god would have us there and grow us then we wanted to be faithful to that and it's been incredible we we get to serve a few hundred people every sunday morning and i love it i love it so that's a little bit of my story. I've got two kids, 11 and almost eight, Tessa and Marlo. My wife, Katie, and I just celebrated 15 years of marriage. Wow. And love being married. And I love being a dad. And thanks for coming to my my neck of the woods. Thanks for coming to my office. Yeah. No, so, this is great. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. We're delighted thanks. to have you on. Just some background. We've been trying to get you on this podcast for like three months or longer. <laughs> I remember contacting you and then subsequently Michelle yeah. uh, about setting something up. And then this was back in April. <laughs> and then I missed the window in May. And then you were like gone. And then we had a call at the end of July to set up for the actual podcast for now, which is a month later. So it was just kind of a journey. So, you know, well, everything a lot of build up. regarding sex and intimacy has changed in those few months. And so this is going to be a very, very different podcast now. Awesome. Thanks for your patience with me. We're, we're so delighted to have you. And the reason honor. why we did bring you on, like I said, when I was going to Ecclesia, the skin series, the sermon yeah. series that you did was really one of those like hard hitting topics that was really uncomfortable and <laughs> 
was needed, I thought, and the reason why we started this podcast was exactly to talk about these kinds of meaty issues that I think a lot of the times we are afraid to broach mm-hmm. in conversation. So why are we doing this topic? We believe, Mary Ashley and I, that there is a confusion about the difference between sex and intimacy, mm. often confusing one for the other or sub- substituting one for the other. And there's a lot of really great nuggets that you had in the skin series that I wanted to kind mm. of extrapolate. Uh, but particularly, let's start with this question. In the second part of the series, you called it Lies We Believe. A lot of gut-wrenching, like <laughs> soul-punching things that when I was re-listening to it, I was just like, oh my gosh, yes. But mm. you talk about doubt being rooted in the idea that God doesn't love you, that he's withholding things from you. How does that connect to the lie that we believe about sex being equated with intimacy? That's a great question. I haven't heard that teaching series since I taught it. So this gave me a chance to go back through some of my notes. I was a brand new preacher at the time, so I'm floored that God would use it to impact anybody's lives. But I did I did enjoy going back through some of the notes from that particular talk. And you ask a great question. The way I would probably put it today is, quite simply, if God isn't for you, if that's your core belief or assumption that God really isn't for you, then any vision that he describes for your sexuality, for your body, for your relationship, for your soul, cannot possibly be the best that you could get. There has to be a better option out there. Hmm. However, if you could trust that God truly does love you, if you could trust that he's created you out of that love for interhuman intimacy and has a vision for sexuality that denies it to some, for lots of reasons, not just because of choices that they make, but maybe physically that is denied to some, mm-hmm. then he must be able to provide that intimacy that he's created you for without the necessity of intercourse. So those two things must be extracted. They're related for sure. They mm-hmm. have to be separated from each other because God desperately wants the one for you, which may or may not include the other. So that's why I mm-hmm. think if you believe that God isn't for you, if he doesn't want mm-hmm. the best for you, then you have to believe that there's more that I could get by ignoring whatever he says about my body and sex and, and relationships. But if he loves me, if he's for me, and he wants that intimacy, then he must be able to provide it outside of that if that's not a part of my life. So that, that's probably how I would talk about it now. I think it's healthiest to explore both of those topics as their own interrelated ideas rather sure. than one is one requires the other. So does that is that clear? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're separate, but then there is an intersection where obviously when they come together, they're it's a very beautiful thing. But mm-hmm. uh, what I'm hearing you say is that intimacy doesn't have to involve sex and sex certainly doesn't involve intimacy. I and mean, we find that in time. our culture all the time. Right. Which leads me into this other thing, this other question of, as a pastor in LA, how have you seen the confusion about both intimacy and sex manifesting itself in our society? You know, I, I end up thinking about, that's a great question. I, I thought about what we mean when we talk about intimacy. Yeah, that would be great. And I think it's possible that we all are thinking different things when that word comes to mind, because intimacy certainly could give the impression of just closeness, of vulnerability. And, and maybe that's a part of it for sure. But I was thinking about, gosh, what is true intimacy, true intimacy that 
I feel we can experience because God sees us the way we really are. And I think that probably, to me, informs more of what it really means to be truly intimate with each other. And so a definition that I uh, sketched out here was that true intimacy is just sharing yourself with another as you really are. Yeah, which requires a a certain amount of vulnerability that I think on both sides of the physical as well as emotional aspect, I think people are afraid of. Oh, absolutely. Um, Because true intimacy would require trust. If I'm intimate with you as a device to get something from you that I want, or as a device to maybe one day build up trust, then intimacy actually hasn't been established. I'm almost playing at it in a way. I'm using symptoms of intimacy, faking it in a way to try and develop something that I really long for. When at the end of the day, it's this courageous choice to be completely myself the way that I really am my real story uh, with another human being mm-hmm. or another person certainly with God as if I think about that to me it's astounding how hidden and detached anybody can choose to be while still having such a vulnerable act or an experience of sex mm-hmm. that that to me is proof that sex doesn't isn't necessary for intimacy or that intimacy isn't an automatic just because you're having sex. That physical connection can be so artificial. That's just another example of how it actually could be one thing that you are using sex in this case to try and get intimacy can actually be pulling you further and further and further away from it. Go so ahead. what would you say to people <clears throat> who say that they don't have sex in order to get intimacy, that they're just having fun and this is just what their body needs and they reduce it to just biology. Hmm. Well, yeah, I, I would I would say a few things. But I think the first reaction is that you can have it for fun and it is biology. And. You're right. Certainly that is your choice. I think that's the beauty of... The only act of nature that God has never overridden, you know, through miracles and through the testimony of scripture that we see, the only act of nature he's never overridden is your right to choose. Mm, And including choosing not to pay any attention to him. Yeah. And so if you choose to take something that he's wanting to give so much through and use it for less, you could choose it. We could talk about what effect that may have on you. And that wouldn't only just be from a faith perspective. That would be from a psychological, sociological uh, perspective too. Uh, so that that perspective is girded with so much data that shows that sex could be so much more than we often uh, use it to play, than we often use it for. So yeah, I think that the, there's a freedom in the sense that, yeah, you can use it for that. In the same way that I could use a screwdriver to open up a package that came in the mail. But I think we're missing out on so much more. And it could also be, too, if I can just keep pontificating. Yeah, please. (laughs) (laughs) It could also be that it's not only that you're not experiencing the fullness of what sexual intimacy could be, but you're also Hmm. short-circuiting the fullness of what that relationship could be. Yeah. Um, Or who you are as a human if one of the most naked acts that you will ever do with another human being is reduced to hobby. Mm. Well, we came upon upon this article recently. Um, Do you want to bring that up? It was was interesting. We were actually talking about it on our way here. 
It actually came out, um, it came out on August 2nd in the Washington Post. And it says that actually millennials, and especially millennials that were born in the 90s, are more than twice as likely to be sexually inactive in their early 20s as the previous generation. It's really interesting because it goes into some different reasons. One of them is that they cite is that people now are more picky about what constitutes consent. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we are far less likely to accept being pressured into sex but then there are also some reasons that that do have to do with intimacy that I don't think are necessarily good reasons like pressure to succeed their social lives increasingly conducted on screen unrealistic expectations of physical perfection encouraged by dating apps and wariness over date rape and there's just a lot uh, going on in terms of the impact that technology has had on us and also our unwillingness to go to even try to cross a line of intimacy emotionally yeah. with yeah. someone. So it's and an unwillingness to, to engage in, on intimate levels because it's this vulnerability again. And the know. reality of life. And yeah. um, they start out with a quote from a woman and she says, to me, there's more intimacy with having someone there next to you that you can rely on without having to have sex. I don't want to do anything that would harm the relationship and be something that we can't come back from. Mm. That's a fascinating, that's a fascinating quote. I haven't read the article, but it's certainly it's surprising to, to find that adults are choosing to have sex less now. Yeah. Uh, though the reasons behind it do make some sense, you know, we could start to imagine how some of that data plays out, like you know, the Freakonomics behind it. You wonder mm -hmm. if our inability to have a conversation with a flesh and blood person in front of us, or mm -hmm. the, the handicap yeah. that we're experiencing now, actually creates more fear when it comes to that moment where those intimate conversations or those you know, maybe conversations that would be leading towards sexual intercourse and intimacy. I, I wonder if the inability to really do that well, or just the assumption that people are, are hiding or they've branded themselves in a way to get the end that they want, puts off a lot of people who take themselves seriously and take their sexuality seriously. So yeah, I, I, I'm just sort of imagining filling in some blanks there, but that's an interesting trend. Yeah, it's a fascinating trend. I don't... Yeah, it's based on an, a study that was published recently in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. That'd be an interesting archive. Yeah, <laughs> very right? interesting archive. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if we can uh, read yeah, How can we for, subscribe for to that? Journal. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it seems like there's even people do are seeing more, at least according to that, and you know, everybody's experience will be different, but. Um, People do see the relationship between sex and intimacy, but it's the intimacy part that's scary now. Oh, absolutely, 100%. And should be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that if we either assume we have intimacy when we don't, we've we cut ourselves off from everything life could be or relationships could be. Mm -hmm. Or if we are too quick to offer our intimacy, then that will only lead us to pain, heartbreak, disappointment, um, detachment, and maybe even fear for future relationships, oh, which yes. might be leading to some of those statistics too, that, listen, yeah. I've been there already yeah. and it betrayed me. 
So I'm less likely to be so fast to develop relational or sexual intimacy with somebody. I, I think one of the fascinating things about sex, just the physical act of sex, is that when it emerges from true intimacy, that's when you discover the fire that you're playing with. Mm-hmm. And it could be a beautiful fire. It could be a destructive fire. Yeah. When sex is reduced to a merely biological, pleasurable act, which is a component of it, then I don't know that you understand the potency mm-hmm. of physical intimacy. When it comes out of two people who are trying to be themselves with another person, then all of a sudden sex becomes powerful. And I think whether it's in a lifelong relationship or not, that's you begin to see why it's such a big deal to our creator. Oh, yeah. Well, in your damaged goods part of the series, you talk about freedom being, true freedom is being a steward. It's stewardship. Mm. Right. And you, you say this, which is, which is fantastic. When we engage in sex outside of God's plan, we're not settling for less. We're settling for opposites. And mm. though we have the freedoms that we have to choose, and that's something that God never tampered with, it could lead to something wonderful if we go into obedience or it could lead to something very destructive. Mm. And I don't think that, especially young people, you know, and we've been there, you know, like just making choices because, oh, I can do whatever I want. I'm out of college. I live out of mom and dad's house. You know, like I'm not there. Um, I'm living on my own. I'm going to make choices. that I don't. Those choices can be very, very harmful because you think that freedom means you could do whatever you want, and in the end, especially as believers bound by covenant in God's church, th- there has to be something more mm-hmm. than just, I could do whatever I want. It's it's about being free to obey Christ mm-hmm. in a shameless manner, in a, I want to do this because I love him and what he's done for me. Well, I think that if we assume, I haven't looked at that message, so I still agree with what you quoted me saying. (laughs) Uh, You have to take yourself out of context now. (laughs) Yeah. But I imagine what I was driving at was the romance of ownership. Uh, I use a different word than romance, so that'll be confusing in this conversation, but the appeal of ownership, Mm -hmm. that if we own it, we're autonomous, we can do what we want, and that that feels like freedom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But with that comes... You are the one who will bear the full brunt of misuse of that thing that you own. You are fully responsible for that thing that you own. And some people are perfectly fine saying, you know what, come what may, I am responsible. I'm Mm -hmm. the creator of my own destiny. And that's true. God will not override that decision for you to choose that life. But that is not freedom. Mm -hmm. You're settling for, not even settling for, but you are choosing a life that you can only create by yourself. And... By becoming, by settling into what I believe God told us through the poetry of Genesis 1 through 2, is that he has created us to be caretakers of something he takes responsibility for, Mm -hmm. ultimately. He would bear the brunt of misuse. In fact, that's what we see on the cross is, I mean, the shock of grace to me is that he would bear the brunt of our misuse of something that he, at the end, owns, that he had authority over. And has given us instructions on what to do. (laughs) Given us, this is my vision for life. You know, when Jesus talked about the kingdom, I don't use kingdom anymore when I preach because we don't live in a kingdom, so it doesn't make any sense to us. But life as God knows it, that's how I describe it. So life as God knows it is here. There's glimpses of it here. We see it certainly in the person of Jesus, but it's also a calling forth to this vision that he always had. Shalom would be what we'd call it in the Old Testament. 
that this is the way things were supposed to work together. That's the rightness or righteousness. That's the way things rightly work together. And when we steward that, according to the vision he describes, then we experience freedom. Yeah. Because we are not having to then somehow bear the burden of of the responsibility, the full responsibility and the disuse and misuse of it. We get to trust him for that. So I think that's probably what I was driving at in that, that by trying to hang on to freedom by ownership, we've actually imprisoned ourselves. There is a saying that men will give love to get sex and Mm. women will give sex to get love. Can you comment on the veracity of this in 2016? What about this strikes true in how porn or even rom-coms, which Mm. people have pegged as the female version of porn, (laughs) and what it does to our brains, are used, abused, depended on, substituted for, etc.? Yeah, I love a good rom-com. <laughs> and notice I said good. That's the operative adjective there. It's true. Uh, I would say my experience has been in the, in the people that I know well, maybe there is, uh, I, I don't know how you analyze this, but maybe there's a statistical bias stereotyping men a certain way and women a certain mm-hmm. way. But I can say that in, in my relationships, uh, I would say there are some men and some women who feign love to get sex. Mm. We talked about that in another question there about, yeah. you know, trying to, you know, sort of play act at the symptoms right. of love right. or intimacy. And I would also say that there are some men and women who resort to sex out of desperation for love. Mm. Yeah. So that's how I would maybe expand or refine that, that idea. Men use love to get sex. I don't like what that says about love. I think that it's just a substitution for love, an artificial love. I think I know what people mean if they say that. Mm -hmm. But that's why I would say I think there's some men and women who would feign love or fake love to get sex. Right, of course. Um, Because that wouldn't be true love. That wouldn't be real love, yes. No, not at all. And the opposite is also true, Mm -hmm. that some will resort to sex out of desperation for love. Or in our discussion, out of desperation for intimacy. Yeah. Like this is the best I can get, which is... sad and terrifying it is and how does that play into why people often resort to porn and female porn yeah (laughs) you know just uh, distancing themselves from safeguarding themselves against that intimacy that vulnerability i think that does strike true in the statement i'm Mm -hmm. going to fake love to get this thing or i'm going to just do, you know, have sex so that, because I'm desperate to gain that, that intimacy that may or may not, and I know it to be true. Well, mm-hmm. what's interesting about both those examples is they're just pure representations of artifice. Like they're mm-hmm. just distilling both of those concepts down into mm-hmm. like just the very nugget, like of what uh-huh. each would want to see, if it, assuming that statement is true. Yeah. yeah. What is what is the only thing that we actually really want to see, and let's get to the heart of it and not worry about anything else. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can speak to porn with quite a bit of authority. I had an addiction to porn for years, and actually, in partnership with my wife, and then a lot of counseling several years ago, I was able to face that and learn what motivated that, and then begin to heal from it, and now use that as a way. The way God has redeemed that now is as I tell that story often uh, from the stage the numbers of people who find freedom through that um, Mm. 
is uh, remarkable. And that's not, I mean, you think about it, you look at all of scripture and you're like, okay, all of these are just screwed up stories that give us a sign that there's hope. You know, that when people see our stories, your past, your past, and then they see any glimmer of victory that God's provided for you, they think, oh, their future could be mine because their past looks like my present. That's tangential to the question about how porn sort of comes out of this desperation for intimacy and faking the signs of love to get sex. And, and uh, you know, I would say that porn is powerful because it sits right in that Venn diagram of our desire for happiness, intimacy, and autonomy. Mm-hmm. So if you want, like every human being from the garden on, wants to be the master of their destiny, mm-hmm. I mean, porn, think about it. It's like whatever, if I want to be God, Cupid, a teacher, a rapist, mm-hmm. I can become that at a click of a button mm-hmm. without apology mm-hmm. and with anyone I want as many times as I want. So no wonder it is so enticing with most men yeah. and an increasing amount of women. Yeah. Because it delivers briefly and then destructively. So that's where I think it, you know, probably why we continue to see, and we'll always see in some fashion form, the vehicle changes, but the, you know, the drive and the, the accessibility has changed. Mm-hmm. I think that has caused certain sociological ramifications for sure. What I'm not saying, I want to be careful to say this too. What I'm not saying is that that drive for physical imp- or uh, uh, satisfaction, um, satisfaction. Thank you. That that's unnatural, or right. I think it's quite the opposite. God has given us those things, right. like He's given us various desires, and so in that sense, it's very human, very noble, very beautiful in its natural state. Mm-hmm. And so the the drive towards that, and even the experimentation with it, should be expected as a part of growing into hormonal human beings. And so I want to be careful not to say that somehow, like if that's a part of someone's story who's hearing this, or it has been a part of their story in the past, that somehow they've, they're a freak, you know, or they're stupid. Right. I, I completely understand. Oh, absolutely. The use of, and the, and then eventually the addiction to pornography or in that matter, beyond pornography when it moves into human relationships so using other people purchasing the sexual intimacy of other people you know those are certainly coming out of the same desire unfulfilled desire now the rom-com thing do you want to talk about rom-com yeah i did yeah, actually did yeah. make some notes about rom-com oh, yeah i love it because i thought this is a great question did you have something else on the well on just, porn saying, just what you said reminded me of a, a quote from gk chester that it's every man that knocks on the door of a brothel is actually looking for god Mm. God, that's so good. That was a yeah. much better version of what I just said. <laughs> but I love that you had to employ Chesterton to do it. That gives me some comfort. That gives me some comfort. Yeah, I don't take credit for, for it at all. Oh, uh, yeah, but it's good, though. You know, uh, if you say it enough, you can. That's the way it works. You just mm, say it, mm. quote him, say yeah, it. I think you said I say it, say it, and that's yours. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They teach you that in seminary, but preaching school. It's, you know, quote him a few times, and after that, it's yours. I do want to move on to the rom-com thing, but just before that, I just wanted to comment on when you when you talk about First Corinthians six in the series, it's under the title of Damaged Goods, which was the one that I think 
really impacted me the most. Mm. You you say a few things that again just was like soul gut punched. You talk about the body matters and in context of like pornography and masturbation, I'm not harming anyone else. So what's wrong with what I'm doing? And that goes back to like the freedom not always leading being freedom. It it, mm-hmm. it is slavery to a sense. But there is no such thing as casual sex. Wherever the body goes, the soul goes with it. Yeah. And what really, really touched me was this concept of the physical body is part of the body of Christ, meaning the church. Yeah. And where your body goes, so does the body of Jesus. Yeah. You take us, the church, wherever you go. So even in these autonomous states of I'm going to engage in this pornography or I'm going to engage in this illicit relationship that no one else will know about. I mean, in the end... We carry Christ in us if we claim to be believers. And in the end, on a more expanded level, we carry the church. Yeah, isn't that wild? It's crazy. When you when I was listening to you say that, I was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> I was so mad. But I was like, oh my gosh, it's so true. Because we are representatives of Christ on earth. And whether we are doing things in secret or not, we have to face that aspect that for one, Christ is always with us. Yeah. And for two, we're carrying the church with us. In yeah. A sense. We are part of the body. And that just like blew my mind. Just like, but isn't it beautiful? Yeah. Can I update that thought? Please, maybe maybe please. I said it in the message, but I would update that thought to then also say that the body of Christ goes with you to redeem from those mm-hmm. moments. So in the same sense that maybe your imperfection, scars, wounding, defeat, whatever you're feeling your physical body, certainly in your psychology and your, in your soul, that the strength of the body is also what God will use to establish hope and victory for you. will give you a future through that same body. So rather than, and this is, I think the temptation for some is I've gone so far. I just took the church with me. So now I'm ashamed. So I better move into isolation. Right. And you're running away from God's provision. So that's the exciting part. That's the maybe the exciting, the other side of that coin sure. that is so powerful is that the body is also there to sit with your wounds and to experience redemption together. I do want to have a closing thought with all of that because, of course, this is all leading to the gospel, which is redeeming mm. and restoring our broken brokenness because you do go over that in the part of the series that you call New Skin. I do want to hear about sure. the rom-com part of, of oh, yeah. what thoughts you had. Well, I loved that question. And the thing <laughs> I love about it is one of my favorite things about film is that it's another way to tell story. And so it emerges from or represents our stories or it calls us forward into a better story or a different story. And I believe that's even true for rom-coms. <laughs> so I've already confessed that I I love a good rom-com. I'm okay with that. And some of the thoughts I had were that it always has me, a great romantic comedy or just romance, it has me when the characters are experiencing some out-of-the-ordinary journey to then find themselves locked together. So I always love hearing what that journey is and how those circumstances and choices then lead people's lives to intersect and then eventually maybe even merge. Where they bore me, and most of them bore me at points, where they bore me is when the journey has to culminate at a moment of sex. Yes. Like that is the destiny. Yes. I... As you were saying that, it made me think of just how I loathe where all love stories culminate into 
De- declaration, I love you, yep. and then we're in bed together. Right. TV shows and movies, they all, like, that's it's the like that's the only journey. way to represent love. Yeah. And but what's so crazy is so how crazy. how incomplete that story is. Because, mm-hmm. so I've been married for 15 years, and I love it. And our relationship had a similar path. So it started with introduction, then affection, and then expression. There was a, there was, I love you. And then there's a commitment and an altar. And then there was sex, Mm -hmm. which is awesome. Thank the Lord. That is not the end of that story. Absolutely. End of this story, if God gives us the days, will be when we physically are incapable of this. And, and she is changing my diapers (laughs) and I'm watching her lose her mind. And we still choose love. Yes. That's the end of the story. And so that's why those rom-coms bore me when mm-hmm. it's like, that's it. That's the best it can get. In fact, that's the, that is the way that screenwriters tell you that this is true love. Mm-hmm. What would be so, and there are some stories this, that are portrayed this way, but what is so much more interesting and what I'd love to see more of is a far more accurate story where two people who for whatever reason it's impossible for them to have sex maybe they're separated by distance or there's a physical thing or whatever it is it's impossible for them to do that and yet they still experience that lifelong covenant moment or whatever you know or whatever would tell us this the beginning of that you know somehow they experience love the way that we're beginning to discover it in Jesus, you know, obviously I'm not telling them it has to all be faith-based stuff, but just the glimpse of what real love looks like that we see in Jesus. Mm -hmm. I think a great rom-com would be something where two people who that's not going to happen, sex is not going to happen, at least during the story, still experience jaw-dropping love for each other and choose love for each other. Um, Off the top of my head, I was thinking, what would be an example of that? And Casablanca came to mind. However... They do sleep like you, you would, it implies that they have already had, you know, sex and all of that. Sure. But then just the ending there, I mean, it's so classic because of his sacrifice and he knows that he's not going to end up with this woman, but he's doing it because of agape, of a bigger sacrifice. So that came to mind. That's what I call an old love. That's the way I like to describe it is that we have found an old love Mm. because young love is impulse. Yeah. And, and that's awesome. And it sparks in its moments. In its season. Yeah. yeah. And even, I probably threw out in different ways, but sure. finding that old love, that worn-in love, that stable is such a boring word, but the strong, enduring love, um, where true intimacy is enjoyed. Can you hear my dog breathing <laughs> on the Speaking microphone? Speaking of love, he's so cuddly. Yeah. <laughs> Unconditional love right there. Magnus. So just getting back into on topic, you talk about in New Skin, God has given us bodies to see what our hearts would do with it. Again, something Mm. to do with stewardship and he is entrusting us with this thing that he created doesn't belong to us. What are we going to do with it? We can choose to obey or not. What would you say to those who have held on to their shame with regards to their sexual Mm. behavior and or their past and to those that are still stuck there or trying to get out? I would first say that through the eyes of grace, Mm. every defeat looks like a victory waiting to happen. Mm. And I think that the most extreme example, the most historic example of that is the cross. Mm. The most severe defeat, if you call it that, in the history of the world was the greatest victory in the history of the world. Mm. 
Another thing that I've often said, which is related to that, all of this comes out of the great news that Jesus is alive and that changes everything. But another thing I would say is that God does not want you to regret what he's ready to redeem. That's so good and too. <laughs> the, if the church, or when the church, when she gives people a, an immediate invitation to redemption, all the time, constantly, all the time, I, I've seen this be life-changing for people who are devastated in the throes of shame or guilt, Mm. hearing that the voice of God, the voice of the Spirit is not telling you to feel more guilty. The voice of the Spirit is telling you that there's hope, that you're not at a dead end, that this is the beginning of of a brand new start. And I think what Paul was driving at when he said that the most important thing that, that we believe is that Jesus is still alive, his resurrection theology, I think what was so what is so crucial about that is not just that the biggest magic trick that we claim is actually a true thing. I think instead what he's saying is that there is absolutely nothing that you can't come back from, that there's nothing left to fear, including the most terrifying thing of all, which is death. Mm-hmm. So resurrection now in our day-to-day tells us that a new life, a new chapter, a new relationship, a new hope is possible. But here's the truth, is that in order for a resurrection to take place, a death does have to take place. Yes. So if someone, that could be a death to shame over your past. It could be a death to current habits that right now are shaping your life. And I understand that the fear associated with that death is probably the same fear that the disciples had. And that's not the day of the cross. It's the three days between the cross and the resurrection Mm -hmm. where you're like, I don't know where I am and what I'm supposed to do. Everything's being unmade and unraveled. And where is God in this? Mm -hmm. That's really the fear that often uh, impedes people from saying, I'm ready to accept God's vision for my life. Ready to accept that my shame doesn't define me. So there's that death, and then there's the three days or longer, probably much, much longer, of being unraveled. But the good news is resurrection's coming. I think we live in, I've said this before, in fact, this was part of what I mentioned in Easter this last, uh, this last Easter, was that we live in daybreak. And daybreak isn't mm. the moment when the sun is at high noon. It's just the moment that you know the sun is rising. Mm. So the darkness is still there, but you know that a new day is dawning. And that's what the resurrection means for us now, uh, that we're looking forward to a day when the only thing we can see is light. But right now in your darkness, God's inviting you to daybreak, you know? Oh. <laughs> that's my Magnus. dog sneezing ah, to say, I talked too long on that point. I get it, Magnus. I'll edit later. choosing chastity now Mm. and are going without sex, giving that up, how would you encourage them in that? Because sometimes even though you're trying to follow God's plan for your life, there's still loneliness. There's still the sense of abandonment. And then you see all these other people that are not choosing chastity or making even good choices. And they seem to be really happy Mm -hmm. and God seems to be blessing them in their relationships. And um, so how would you encourage them in that? I think there's a triumph in singleness that is not available to those in marriage. I think that's why Paul was so hopped up on the idea 
most of the New Testament is written from the perspective of, well, our Savior was single, certainly, and then Paul who wrote everything we learn now about marriage, for the most part, what we think is a biblical vision of marriage was written by a single guy who may have been a widow we're not, or widower, we're not sure. But that's just theoretical. What I would say to people who are single now is that the desire for, the longing for intimacy, for lifelong connection, even for romance, is, I won't tell you not to feel that way. I would be carefully truthful with them that that longing is something that they will bear in various, you know, various uh, severity throughout until they either discover that relationship or until their life is over. And it also is a longing that we all share. Mm -hmm. All of us will end our lives longing for more. And in my experience, lonely people who get married just have a lonely marriage. That it does not become the ending to that search for connection and intimacy. Mm. And we can say, again, theoretically, theologically, that it's ultimately only satisfied in our relationship with God, and yet we live in this world. So we will all die, no matter who's attached to us, who's married to us, how many people are at our funeral, we will all die longing. And the great hope that we have is that the best is still yet to come, even at the point of death. So there is great power in singleness. There's great freedom in singleness. There is great identity and value in singleness. There's great hope in singleness. And marriage doesn't change any of those things. There's great longing in singleness and great desire in singleness. And marriage doesn't change any of those things. So I would be realistic mm. and hopeful. I think that's what I would say without any preparation. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to spring that on you. <laughs> that's okay. It's a great question. That's a great answer. And an important question. I, I will say that the church has an opportunity in this age and in our city. You know, we're in Los Angeles. I'm not sure where some of your listeners might be, but certainly in Los Angeles. I, I will say that in this day and age, the church has an opportunity to celebrate singleness in a way that maybe we weren't inclined to do before, mm -hmm. that we would stop treating marriage as Mecca, mm -hmm. that marriage is a qualification for levels of authority in the church, that the church in all of its diversity celebrates the gifting, the power, the value of people of all marital statuses and Facebook <laughs> statuses. <laughs> um, Matt disagrees. So I do think there's an opportunity there for the church to celebrate and welcome the contribution of the single community. Yeah. So not that this topic isn't hard to talk about enough, but for those that are <laughs> within the church that claim to be believers, yeah. what would you say to those who have not felt convicted to follow what God has to say about this topic with regards to being in covenant relationship before engaging in such intimacies as sex mm -hmm. and whatnot, what would you tell them? I mean, this is a good segue to what we were from what we were talking about already. You know, like being in singlehood has its benefits, but certainly in 2016, we have seen it not being a priority in at least in some church settings that I've been in where we're not encouraging each other 
to obey God in this mm-hmm. matter, especially in a place like LA. I'd imagine like New York or big cities where living in big cities, it's so much easier to just hook up and, you know, mm-hmm. just have these casual flings or whatnot. What would you say specifically to believers who mm-hmm. have not freed themselves from this behavior? You're asking for believers. I'll only insert this if it's useful. I, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves that people who don't say they're following Jesus should be expected to pay any attention to him whatsoever or act like him. Sure. If this is someone who said, I've, I've come to trust that Jesus can save me, that I want him to lead me, then the next question I would ask is really a foundational one, which is what role do you think scripture has? Because mm-hmm. there's disagreements about that. Because I want to know what we're appealing to when we talk about where you get your conviction from. It's true, yeah. So we'd have to still talk about what do you think Scripture is and how do you think God uses it? Does God speak through it? And then if they generally believe that Scripture is authoritative, that God speaks through it uniquely, then I would move into what do you understand about what he has described around these ideas. And then if the understanding is still the same but they lack the conviction, then at that point... You cannot coerce them to be convicted. That's the job of the Spirit. You cannot do it. Lovingly, constantly lovingly, with lots of patience and lots of forbearance and in relationship, not pushing them into isolation, I would want to explore why they want to hold on to their autonomy in this. Yeah. And usually some very (laughs) routine reasons emerge. It feels good right now. I'm lonely. This is the best guy I've ever met. Uh, And this is what he wants. Mm. Everybody in the world is doing it. This sounds like such a junior high or like a playground argument, but we all say it. I say it sometimes. It's like, well, this is what everybody's doing. Yeah. Or what about wanting to find out if you're compatible in that way with someone? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I want to try before I buy. Sure. It's a good question. I think that it's helpful to understand what they mean by compatibility because physical compatibility, that's fairly easy to figure out. If they mean like preferential compatibility, those are things that can be discovered out of true intimacy, which doesn't involve the act of sex. So that happens in relationship. It happens in great conversation and communication. That happens in community. That happens in it happens in good counseling, which is rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll make that note there that really good, honest, soul-opening counseling is rare. If the question comes from, I don't know if I'm going to still be attracted or into this person or want them, mm. and it, the marriage will settle into something sexless, there are reasons that have nothing to do with practicing sex before your marriage that need to be addressed, if that's the case. Yeah. And then statistically, which is the most unconvincing thing of all, but I just say it only because it's, it's informative, statistics say that the large majority of people who have experienced sex before marriage do not report having more fulfilling sexual intimacy after marriage. It's just not, the data's not there. And I know that most people will write that off and they'll say, well, that's a statistic and I'm, I'm not a statistic, it's my own story. But then my question would be like, what makes you so sure you're the exception? Yeah. Tim Keller did a sermon series on marriage and I remember one of the things he said, I don't remember the exact statistics and numbers, but he was talking about there was a study done about people that had lived together and that, yeah. mm-hmm. and in fact, their dissatisfaction with the marriage after they get married, uh, after living with each other before marriage, was, way higher. Yeah. And they're more likely to divorce. Yeah. Because you have these Twice as likely to divorce or more. Yeah. yeah. Again, I didn't want to quote 
exact statistics I don't remember, but I just found that staggering because it's counterintuitive. Like we think, let's live together, let's try it out before we actually get married, but they are actually less happy. And people that wait, the expectation of marriage is like, I'm in a covenant, so I'm just going to hopefully go through the hard times. But when you live together beforehand, your expectations are still less than if you were in a marriage. And so when marriage happens something happened, like something significant changes because now it's this covenant, but you've been practicing less commitment, even though you've been living together already. And I think uh, you're right. The significance of the decision stands in such stark contrast. If you have not been playing at being married up to that point Mm -hmm. or practicing being married up to that point, you understand the level of life change that this is requiring of two individuals Mm -hmm. So when your mindset changes, then your expectations change mm-hmm. and your choices change. Yeah. And so I'm not surprised that people are twice as likely to get divorced if they've lived together before because marriage at that point becomes a what? A formality? Yeah. Uh, maybe a romantic gesture. Yeah. That that's what well, we've been living together for yeah. Six years. I mean, I suppose we should get married. Why? <laughs> yeah. So you can throw a self centered party. Yeah. That's what it amounts to. So I can do this grandiose thing mm. and then go back to the life that we were living before this. Yeah. And so if it's not a big change, then why should the commitment... It, certainly it happens. Certainly people who live together and then get married stay together for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so many reasons to, I think, revisit that assumption. Just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean it's the best idea. Right. I, uh... In fact, everyone that, because everyone's doing it, may be that should give you pause to, to not do it. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say I, the state uh, of marriage uh, in the U.S. is, uh, you know, all that optimistic right now. I uh, heard a presentation once from a Catholic sociologist, and he was saying, like, this is the one area where, like, statistics are actually in line with what we believe. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, like, there's statistics for pretty much everything. But even, even like, the very liberal sociologists have to recognize, like, something here. But he said that he, because he was a professor, and so he was teaching this to his students, and his students were saying, like, well, you know, it's just like driving a car. Like, you want to test drive a car before you buy it. And he was like, okay, well, in that scenario, who's the driver and who's the car? Mm-hmm. That's good. Like, you're automatically treating another person like an object when you're looking at it like that. Yeah, Yikes. that's good. That is good. That's very, very good. <sighs> uh, well, just to wrap it up, on just on this last question then, you know, part of the reason why we started this podcast, and you kind of said it when you were talking about a little bit about your testimony, mm-hmm. we feel that just people telling their stories brings such healing and such openness in a community where maybe traditionally or culturally, for some reason, we think that there are these things that we need to hide about our past or behaviors. But we feel telling stories in any way, you know, we're filmmakers as well, but this podcast just seemed to be the most accessible way that we can impact our immediate community. That's great. That being said, what is it about sex that makes it such a demand, such a human condition need, and what do we get wrong when we, as Christians, choose to not talk about it openly? Well, I think it stands as maybe one of the most compelling of a host of desires that God creates us with. And if he has created us with those desires, at their basic level, they are noble, they are human, they are beautiful. So the reason I think that sex can be, for some, a captivation Mm -hmm. is because of the promise of intimacy, 
mixed with the promise of happiness, mixed with the promise of security, mixed with the promise of this autonomy. If, if that's, if you want to, you know, employ your autonomy and just choose to do whatever you want with your body. Mm-hmm. And so for all of those reasons, I, I think that it's loaded with no wonder we're so tempted yeah. to short circuit God's vision for it. I think the church has so much to offer and for social reasons we may have said less than we can and contributed less than we can to the public discourse around sex so to me it's a wonderful uh i love that you're doing a podcast and we live in an age where it's never been easier for people with something to say can get their word out yeah and can get their opinions heard whether or not that's compelling or or persuasive at all i mean that it certainly is a case-by-case thing. But the church itself, not just in a pulpit on Sunday morning, but the church community, as she scatters into the world through personal relationships and podcasts, has a chance to reestablish a strong vision for the beauty of sex, but also the limitations of it. Yeah. So that we have a... Our longing for true intimacy doesn't suffer because we've settled for sex. So I think that, you know, more can be said. I think the frequency of talking about it, you know, on a prophetic level, if you will, like sort of just reading the times and seeing like what needs to be said now. I think it's time for a more frequent conversation Mm -hmm. about sex in the church. You know, Jesus spoke a ton about money, and that's Mm -hmm. another one that certainly could be talked about a lot more in churches. I think less was said about sex. And yet the time is what would ramp up, I think, the urgency and the frequency. So... Yeah, I, I would look forward to much more contributions from the church, um, from great communicators, from people who have a story to tell. Yeah, so I, I do think that it would address a common, significant desire that that all of us can identify with. So it's a great opportunity for the church. I agree, and that's why we started this podcast <laughs> good for you i am so proud of you guys this is so courageous um, i love it what an you. honor thank you so much for being on our podcast this has been a lot of fun i mean it's a hard topic but like i said i genuinely was really excited just to have this conversation because i think like you said we just need to talk about it more mm. So that being said, to our audience, we are here with Joseph Barkley in his Pasadena office (laughs) uh, with his dog sitting right next to us, or was, uh, breathing loudly. So if you heard any loud breathing, that was the dog and not any one of us. (laughs) (laughs) Well, probably not. Maybe. We'll just just blame him. Uh, but if you do have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com or find us on our website at fishersofmenpodcast.com. We are also on Facebook under Fishers of Men, on Twitter as at LA Gone Fishing, and Instagram at Fishers of Men Podcast. There's an underscore for in between each word. Please do rate and make comments on iTunes that, as it will help people discover us. Once again, I'm Laura Samara. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I am Joseph Barkley. Until next time, keep swimming.